these songs that we have just sung together have been so spirited, so encouraging. In so many ways, the message is said in such a compelling way. Come we that love the Lord, for instance, or this most recent song, I know whom I believed. That kind of confidence and assurance never ceases to be uplifting and that which should characterize our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The words, after all, were taken from 2 Timothy 1, verse number 12. It is good that we can all come together today. Thankful are we that we can offer this worship service to the marvelous and great God of heaven. For the next few moments this morning, why not we give some consideration to a lesson that I've entitled, The Agony of Victory, The Thrill of Defeat. Now that very language may in fact sound so odd, maybe even strange, not only unexpected, but maybe nonsensical. After all, agony and defeat, I'm sorry, agony and victory, and on the other hand, the thrill that would go with defeat. By now you may have already begun to appreciate a slogan somewhat like that is one that you may have heard many times in your life. This introductory slide will, I hope, set that slogan before you in the context in which you heard it. And today, we will turn that slogan around. Beginning in 1961, the American Broadcasting Company, you and I know of as ABC, they aired a program virtually every Saturday for almost 40 years. It was a program you probably spent many a Saturday afternoon, maybe not watching all of it, but you may well have watched parts of it, elements of it. For after all, over that many years, that's a lot of programs. It was called ABC's Wide World of Sports. And the introductory slogan to that is what I've asked you to consider on that slide. Jim McKay was the original spokesman who, in fact, worded that. And sometime later, there were other spokesmen. But Jim McKay's voice is probably the one with which you're the most familiar. And as he would read that with scenes displayed on the TV, this is what he'd say. Spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sport, the thrill of victory, and the agony of defeat. The human drama of athletic competition, this is ABC's wide world of sports. The music that was played with that was quite familiar probably to most anyone who ever heard it. And the scenes that were displayed when it was the thrill of victory, you saw runners as they would cross the finish line first. Or you would see boxers who would stand over the defeated opponent. But when it showed the agony of defeat picture, there was this skier who in fact tumbled virtually down the ski slope and suffered a horrendous kind of, of tragic accident. But he was okay, thankfully. But it seemingly was a, an image that was embedded in the thinking of so very many. As you and I come to that slogan today, like I said, we're going to turn it around. Rather than discussing the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, why don't we give some thought to the agony of victory and the thrill of defeat? And by now, you probably have already begun to wonder the direction that we might take with that idea, but it shall surround the nature of the Christ and the consideration of the victory that you and I enjoy through Him and the defeat that it cost Him. And with that said... Let's then journey into our lesson and first of all, build a consideration of the agony of victory. As the Word of God testifies to you and me and it sets before us 
the victory that is to be had in Christ. You and I know that victory that comes to you and to me and what a marvelous victory it is. Victory from sin. Victory from the, from the devil's hell. And the consideration of the triumphant glory that goes with those who are attached to the Master. That kind of victory is absolutely irreplaceable. There's no other way to have it. We are told in Acts 4 verse 12, "...neither is there salvation in any other." For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Hadn't the Lord already said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The consideration of those truths etched in those passages and so many others bring us to realize the element of victory was a grand one. It was a plan, you see, that in fact no man could have executed or fulfilled. You may notice that near the top of that slide, there is an ugliness connected to the reality of sin. We might well begin with this small sampling of passages. In Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21, the closing two verses of that chapter, you and I well recall that the prophet Isaiah, as he was the spokesman for God on that occasion, he pointed out this incredible and rather graphic truth. He spoke about... The waters cast up mire and dirt. What waters? The waters representative of ugliness and sin and disobedience to God. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. In 1 Kings 8, 46, the wise man Solomon had there lovingly acclaimed, There is no man that sinneth not. Paul would echo that sentiment in Romans three twenty three: All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The tragedy that comes with that sin, of course, is etched so easily in Romans 6.23 because the wages of sin is death. The human family, you see, had found itself in disobedience and separation from God in a place that was marching one by one toward eternal doom and separation from God. And yet God put in place a plan, a scheme, a methodology whereby people could be saved from their sins. The sins could be forgiven. They could be remitted. There was this wonderful element of forgiveness that was to be made available when this plan was completed. When this plan, you see, was brought to its fruition. On that slide, you and I recall that in the infinite foreknowledge of God, 1 Peter 1 verse 2, there was the concept that there was going to require a plan. You and I know so well from our study of the Word of God that the fullness of time finally came. Galatians 4 verse 4. You see, from the time of the creation, the time had never arrived. The time wasn't right, but suddenly it came. And as you and I turn from the book of Malachi to the book of Matthew in the New Testament, we note the elements of the plan had just about reached fruition because there was one born in Bethlehem of Judea of a virgin Mary. That one, you see, was not the son of Joseph. He was the son of God. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33, detail he would sit on David's throne. And as the son of God, he would be the son of the highest. And in that place and in that position, he would save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21. He was going to be the one to enact, to execute, if you please, the plan to make it a reality. I've invited you to notice on that slide 
that as you come near the bottom of it, Jesus Christ clothed Himself in mortality. Didn't Paul say it like this in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation, and took upon Him the form of a servant. And being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." clothed in, in mortality, flesh and blood by way of appearance just like you and I, Hebrews 2.14. And in that place and in that reality, He sojourned here surrounded by those as His contemporaries who so often behaved and mistreated Him in a variety of ways. But true enough, in closing that slide, He came to earth with a mission. Might we take careful note? He didn't come specifically to heal the sick. He did that quite often. He didn't come to provide sight to the blind, though He did that several times. He didn't merely come to provide people such that their belly's full, though He did that quite a bit. The primary mission, the central thing surrounding the reason He came, was to make it possible for people to have their sins forgiven. I came down to do my Father's will, John 6, 38. In John 4, 34, my meat is to do the will of Him that sent me. Isn't that interesting? The entirety of the reason He was born was the cross. He was born to die. In the intervening years, of course, He touched the lives of people and set before us how to live as a Christian and what to do in the service of, of the God of heaven. But surely... We are now ready to see, perhaps more carefully, this agony of victory. What about the agony that was His to bring about the victory you and I enjoy? The victory over Satan? The victory over sin? The victory over the grave? The victory over hell? You might notice then on this slide, to bring about the execution of that plan, of course it cost the Master so much. What about Luke chapter 9, verses 55 and following? In particular, in verse number 58, Jesus Himself would make comment, The Son of Man, speaking of Himself, hath not where to lay His head. The Lord never had very many physical possessions. In fact, wouldn't you be impressed to consider it this way? As far as we can read in the Word of God, the one thing He owned, the cloak, the soldiers cast lots to part it when they crucified Him. We have no record He ever owned a house. No record He ever owned land. No record that He ever owned the other features you and I would consider characteristic of typical living. He was bereft of all of it. In addition to that, isn't it fascinating to notice that He was often in harm's way? And by that, you and I recall the difficulty surrounding, for instance, His return to His hometown of Nazareth. Wouldn't you think your hometown would receive you well? Isn't that the very place in Luke 4, He said, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country. I call to your attention specifically that unforgettable scene in John 8, where there the people were so unfavorable toward His message. They carried Him to the ledge that was the brink of the city and were ready to cast Him over, prepared to put Him to death then. But He was, of course, delivered at that time. 
not only the matters of that personal safety, what about those who would misappropriate his authority? I suspect many of us would become extremely agitated when someone calls into question the nature of that which we do or have done and misappropriate it. Haven't you been a bit upset by that on occasion? Someone takes the credit for what you did. Or someone, in fact, directs attention in a way that's inappropriately directed to you. You may notice in Mark 3, verse 23, Verse number 22, they did that to our Lord. The next one on the list to which I called your attention, his own family rejected him. In John 7, verse 5, his brothers didn't believe in him. Quite often the connection that you and I would consider concerning our family is such that we would be very heartbroken and moved greatly by it, even the Lord's brothers before he was crucified at least. And before he was resurrected, they didn't believe in him either. The next element on the slide, another peg in the consideration of that agony. He was forsaken by his closest followers. Those disciples that, of course, had worked and recognized and been with him and seen his working of miracles and appreciated the way in which he brought about the Word of God in humility and honesty, in Mark 14, 50, they turn and ran. When he was arrested, they fled. Now, the Lord quoted the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah, in connection to that event. But don't you know how much it must have hurt him to recognize that the closest followers, those nearest and dearest to him, left him all alone when he was arrested in Gethsemane? Maybe it is in that light. Peter one of the nearest to him, even denied him three times. How do you and I feel when a close friend betrays us, denies us? And you and I know Judas betrayed him. We close all of that slide by noting that in the Garden of Gethsemane, just a mere hours before he was crucified, the agony had become so great. You and I will recall that the drops fell from his head, as Luke would tell us. And as they did that in verses 34 and following, how strong it was to notice how heavy the Lord became. The text says He became sorrowful, heavy, knowing full well what the agony of the next day was going to bring. To summarize some of that even more carefully, I've tried to put it on this slide in a very quick and rather directed way. The agony of the cross. Over the course of that evening, after the arrest in Gethsemane, we remember he was tried, but it was a mockery of a trial. False witnesses were paid to say things about him, and oddly enough, many times their testimony didn't agree. Finally, on a charge of blasphemy, the Jewish leaders regarded him as worthy of death. On that slide, you and I recall, they had to bring him to a Roman person of authority, in this case, Pilate. And they thus besought Pilate to give the word, the authority to put this man, Jesus, to death. Even Pilate agreed, I find no fault in him. Pilate said that more than once. Here was the judge on the trial that said, I find the man not guilty of anything worthy of death. And yet, and yet... You and I recall that Pilate finally 
compromised to the point of turning him over to those that were his enemies. On that slide, you might remember that Pilate made one last effort. It would seem one last effort to soothe his conscience and to, in fact, lead to the freedom of this one whom he did not think was worthy of death. Oddly enough, at that season of the year, they would release a prisoner. There was a prisoner named Barabbas. He was a well-known fellow. He was guilty of insurrection against the government. He was guilty of being a thief. He was guilty of being a murderer. It would seem from the description in the Word of God that he, in fact, had been the principal force behind some kind of local insurrection. And Pilate agreed, would you rather have him released or Jesus? It would seem that Pilate had certainly felt as if this guy, Barabbas, was such a rascal that surely they wouldn't want him released. Much to Pilate's surprise, likely, they demanded Barabbas released. What then should I do with Jesus? And they cried, the text says, crucify Him. Can you imagine the humiliation? A life of perfection never had done anybody in any way wrong. Crucify Him, but release the murderer. Release the thief. Release the insurrectionist against the government. And yet, as that took place, Pilate called for the Lord to be scourged. Talk about agony. The beating, the whipping, if you please. You've likely read about the features, and we've noted it more than once in our Bible classes and lessons, how that the victim was affixed in a way to be very vulnerable. Quite often, hands tied in some affixed position, either over one's head or bent over a particular uh, post or some kind of a bench. And then these Roman soldiers would beat away using specially prepared whips against the victim. It wasn't that unusual for victims to die in the course of the scourging. But the Lord didn't. He survived. But consider the amount of blood that must have been lost. The amount of torture to the body. The amount of excruciating agony that went with it. Remember again the agony of... Victory? The victory you and I enjoy and are so thankful to have cost Him this. As you close that slide with me, you notice, of course, that they finally, even after all of this, led Jesus to this point of Golgotha. And there they nailed through His hands and His feet to affix Him to this cross and suspended Him there between heaven and earth. In that position, you and I recall that he nonetheless could say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. In that position, the Master himself could cry, It is finished, John 19, 30. What was finished? He wasn't talking about his life. He was talking about his mission. What he came to accomplish. He had lived sinlessly. He was now in the process of dying for your sins and mine. And all who would come to Him would be able to enjoy the blessing of which Brother Cale read earlier today. Though He were a son, yet learned He obedience by the things which He suffered 
And being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey Him. There is, however, one thing to note additionally, it would seem, about that passage given our lesson today. And it's the verse that precedes it. We often don't reflect as much on verse 7, but may I read it and call your attention to it. Hebrews 5, verse number 7. Who in the days of His flesh, when He had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto Him that was able to save Him from death, and was heard in that He feared. Now there's a lot of pronouns in that passage. Could I invite you to note the reference in those pronouns? Who in the days of His flesh, this is Christ, when He, that's Christ, had offered up prayers and supplications, our Master prayed on more occasions than just in the garden in John 17. You notice He had offered up prayers and supplications, and then it says this, with strong crying. Jesus didn't just cry meagerly. He didn't just shed some innocent tears, if you please. The text says He cried strongly. Talk about agony. He knew what was coming. He knew what was going to cost this victory that was to be yours and mine and the agony that would be His. And then it says this, He cried to the one who could save Him from death. Oh, indeed, God could have. But in the infinite wisdom and will of God for us to be saved, He couldn't have done it. Didn't the Lord pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. There was no other way. Had there been, the Father would have answered that prayer. There was no other way. It required the cross. And it required His death upon it in this way the only way you and I could have victory. The agony that was His allows us to close that slide then and transition to at least the second part of the slogan. We have painted a dramatic picture of the circumstances of the agony connected to the victory that's ours. What about the other part? The thrill of defeat. None of us, I'm sure, like losing. When you played athletics or still play in some kind of athletic event, we don't like to lose. I suspect nobody does. We may do it on occasion, sometimes more often than others. But what about the thrill of defeat? To take celebration in defeat. To take jubilation in the event of losing, if you will. Our saga continues. On the cross, of course, when it appeared the Lord had been defeated, it looked as if Satan had won. The Son of God was dying. However, could you and I then think for a moment about the thrill again that comes to you and me in consequence of what was His apparent defeat. It wasn't real defeat. It was only apparent. In Genesis 3.15, in the earliest prophecy of the Bible, isn't it amazing to note there that as the God of heaven gave speech, if you please, to the devil, He said, Thou shalt bruise his heel, but he shall bruise thy head. Now that seed of the woman that was under discussion was a reference to Christ. And it's true, old devil, you'll be able to bruise his heel, 
which has reference, you know, you and I, we can hurt our heel and we can still live and we can even go about doing many things. We may have to walk a bit slower. We may have to otherwise wear some kind of special shoe. But we can proceed onward. But what about the other one, the bruising of the head? You'll notice that in that same passage it was said that he, the seed of the woman, will bruise your head. A fatal wound, a fatal blow, one that is incapacitating fully. Can't you and I appreciate the fact and the truth that the club which the devil had held over the human family from the time of the creation all the way really until the efforts of our Master was the club of death. As it is appointed unto men once to die. We understand that. We know all about this. Death is a part of the typical approach and reality of life. But there's one thing about that, of course. As you and I give thought to the matter of death, you understand that the power in it, of course, is a leaving of this life the appreciation of leaving the physicality of it behind, and the uncertainty that, of course, clouds the idea of many as they contemplate what lies ahead. The latter part of that verse, I stopped before I finished it. As it is appointed unto men once to die, after this the judgment. There's coming a moment, a time of judgment, and certainly to be found lacking that day, to be found in an unprepared sort that day is more terrible than what one can contemplate. Jesus, in fact, will say to many, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Matthew seven twenty three. There will be others to whom, of course, they have found themselves having once been a member of the body of Christ, but no longer are. To them He'll say, I know you not. He had known them once. But at that moment, He doesn't. Reminds us quite a bit of Ezekiel 33, doesn't it? When in fact there, a similar Old Testament passage describes something quite common and similar. Those who had known the truth and had been faithful to it choose to walk from it. And God says, your life will be required at my hand. No wonder in that connection, you and I are beginning to see more sweetly the thrill. The thrill that comes with what was His apparent defeat. A stronger than the strong man had come. The strong man was the devil, Mark chapter 3. And one stronger than the master, or one stronger than him was now available. Jesus was going to take His power in that way from Him. In 1 John 3, verse number 8, we notice in rather rapid procession and power that this Son of Man came to take the power and defeat this devil, and he did it. The thrill that comes from that defeat helps us now think, all of us, I hope, about this. Where would we be without the Master? That ABC slogan had said, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. But from the perspective of Christianity, ought it not be much better stated like this? The agony of victory and the thrill of defeat. When the Lord died, it again appeared as if the devil had won. But you see, through His death and the majesty connected to it, He would rise again. And Romans 1.4 says that was the concluding proof that He was the Son of God, that He was the Messiah. 
And in that resurrection, He equipped one and all to rise like He. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 and following. And the victory that's ours leads me to bring your attention to in many ways that set of verses. It never ceases to have such power and compelling thrust. Paul would write it like this. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be written, or brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 53 to 57. Did you note victory through Christ Jesus? As you close that slide with me, the resounding defeat that... Jesus then placed upon the devil helps us see today that we need not fear him. We surely respect his capability, but may we in wisdom always live in the friendly confines of the safety that is the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. And so the thrill of defeat allows me to close this lesson and that slide that's now before you with this interesting set of summaries. Jesus indeed closed His life in the flesh and ascended back to heaven, Acts 1, verses 9 through 11. And He reigns over His kingdom today, which is the church. And as He reigns over that kingdom, the absolute nature of His headship is appreciated. And it's so easily to be seen that He now with joy, in the words of Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, Seeing we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. I haven't, I'm not even going to finish the verse. But when you think of the joy that was set before Him in the context of the cross, what joy was in it for Him? The joy that was in it for him was the fact of all the beloved followers of his that will in determination and devotion follow him and look forward to that eternity in heaven. Rather than contemplating the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, we have turned that slogan completely around today and have reflected upon the agony of victory. Our victory required Christ's agony. And we've also seen the thrill of defeat. What was the apparent defeat of the Master has led to such a thrilling reaction and response by us in light of what He's done. He tasted death for every man, Hebrews 2 verse 9. Today, are you a faithful follower of the Lord? If you're not, it may be one of two circumstances. Maybe you've never become a Christian you know what the Bible has taught, but perhaps to this point you've never made a choice, a decision to become a follower of the Lord. We want you to know, and the Lord does too, it's by far the best life. In Matthew 11, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly and hearty. Ye shall find rest for your souls. The only place to find rest for a weary soul is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus offers that through that marvelous plan which He executed that we have considered today. Won't you believe on Him as a Son of God? Won't you repent of your sins? Won't you confess His matchless name as the only Messiah of heaven? And won't you be baptized for the remission of your sins? If today we could be of encouragement, of assistance in that way, we'd be delighted to do it. If you, however, have been a faithful Christian, but you've chosen to leave that kind of life behind, you've begun to act and think and behave in ways that have brought reproach upon the name of the Lord and upon that for which His will was presented, He still loves you. Regardless what you've done, He still loves you. And if you will simply follow the teaching of the Word and confession and repentance of those things and rush back to His side... He will reinstate you with all the rights, privileges, and promises that once were yours. Today, we'd be delighted to pray with you the decision those left each of us. And if you need to respond today, won't you allow our study of this old ABC slogan turned on its head, the agony that you and I have studied, the agony of victory and the thrill of defeat to prompt you and I to respond if we need to do that while together we stand and sing.